Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning and welcome to worship. Join with me in prayer. And Father, today as we've joined together for worship, we pray the presence of your Holy Spirit will keep us sensitive uh, to the truth of your Word, that we might hear it, we might uh, understand it, we might apply it into our lives. I thank you for those who have joined with us in worship on campus, as well as those uh, who are joining uh, online. And I ask, Lord God, that you will draw near to them, and they will feel your presence with them today. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the name of you, God, our Father, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Last Sunday, I spoke on what it means to be diligent, using King Asa as our example of persisting in the work of God and persevering with God in the work that he has called us to do. This morning, I want to speak on the subject of the church and its need to be faithful and to stay faithful to Jesus Christ, particularly in the days in which we are living when there is so much turmoil and frustration and anxiety because of uh, COVID-19 and because of all of the things that that has brought into our lives. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And as you're turning there, let me give you uh, some information regarding uh, the backstory. Uh, to the sermon this morning. The book of Hebrews has puzzled the Christian church from the very time that it was written. We don't know for sure who wrote the book. We do not know for sure to whom the book was written. We don't know for sure where the recipients of the book lived. And there is plenty of debate regarding the five warnings contained in the book and the implications of each of those warnings. But we do know that the book of Hebrews is the definitive treatise on the superiority of Jesus Christ above everything and everyone. The book of Hebrews is very pointed in stating that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses and the Mosaic law. He is superior to Joshua, who led the children of Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land. He is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He is superior to the Jewish system of worship. And he's superior to the old covenant established in Abraham. In short, Jesus Christ is superior to everyone and to everything. The book of Hebrews was also written to a Jewish Christian church that was in trouble. 
This church was a second-generation Christian church. They had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from one of the original apostles who had gone into the area uh, as a missionary or as an evangelist uh, to tell people about the Messiah who has come. There were a number of Jewish individuals in that community who believed in Jesus Christ and they were saved. And evangelism began to break out. It was not an easy field uh, to reach for Jesus Christ because the Jewish community uh, usually was very staunch in their Jewish heritage, uh, practice of worship. Uh, Mosaic law, and so on and so forth. So it was a tough time for um, Jewish evangelists to reach their own people for Christ. But there were a number of people who were saved, and a church was formed. After a while, some of those Christian Jews started to think about going back to their old way of life. They missed their Jewish families, and community. They missed the Jewish synagogue and worship. They missed the Jewish celebrations and traditions. You see, uh, like some religions today, if you leave that religion and become a Christian, then you are cut off from that community. In some instances, and I uh, am aware of the fact that even in the Jewish community, if A Jew becomes a Christian, his family issues them a death certificate. You are completely cut off from the family. You are completely cut off from the Jewish community. And some of these Jewish Christians in the days of the apostle who wrote this letter were experiencing that kind of alienation, that kind of persecution from the family and from the community. Not only were they experiencing these things from their own people, Christians were being persecuted by the Jewish community. Open persecution. Some of them were being denied the opportunities to buy in the marketplace or to sell in the marketplace. Some of them lost their jobs. Their Jewish employers would no longer keep them employed. Some of them had to move because their landlords were kicking them out of their homes. And so there was persecution going on by the Jewish community toward the Christian church. In short, it had become increasingly difficult for them to completely leave their old Jewish ways to embrace the new Christian faith and lifestyle. That's not an uncommon thing today. We lose people to the world. There are individuals that we have witnessed to and we have shared the gospel with and uh, have come into uh, the fellowship, were baptized and were a part of the fellowship of the church for a while. But they began to miss their old buddies. They began to miss their old ways. They began to miss their old haunts. And they began to drift away from the fellowship, back out into the world. Some of them came from other religions. And after a while here, they began to miss that former religion, that family religion. And they turned back to that faith. 
And so this letter from the apostle was written to do three things. First of all, it was written to encourage non-Christians to embrace the Christian faith. It was encouraging, it was an encouragement to non-Christians to embrace the Christian faith. Second, it was to encourage struggling Christians to persist in the faith. It was an encouragement to those Christians who may have been weak, who may not have attended to their faith as they ought to have been, uh, who had not been discipled as they should have been. It was an encouragement to them to stay committed to Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. Third, it was an encouragement to mature Christians to persevere in the faith, to not give up in the face of persecution, to not give up uh, out of discouragement. It was an encouragement to mature Christians to persevere in the faith. And so I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19 and reading through verse 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holies, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God, and we ask his blessing upon the word. This is a call to faithfulness. This is a call to be faithful to Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. It is a call to be faithful despite alienation from family and friends. It is a call to be faithful while facing discouragement and doubt. It is a call to faithfulness in the struggle of Christian living in an ungodly world. Now, the apostle in this passage of scripture outlines three ways in which we can be faithful and we can remain faithful to Jesus Christ. But before we get into those three ways, we need to define what faithfulness is. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, the apostle has given us a thumbnail view of what faith is. He writes, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, we've read that passage of scripture many, many, many times, but do we understand what it means. What does it mean that faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen? Well, in truth, what the apostle is getting at is faith is the foundation or the essence 
of our hope and assurance in Jesus Christ. It is the foundation or the essence of our hope and assurance in Jesus Christ. And it is the proof or the demonstration of the reality of what is spiritual and eternal. Those things that are spiritual and eternal are beyond the five senses. We can't touch them. We can't see them. We can't taste them. We can't hear them. But faith brings those spiritual and eternal realities into our lives so that we can understand them with our mind. We can understand them with our heart. So faith is the foundation or the essence of our hope and assurance in Jesus Christ. And it's the proof or the demonstration of the reality of what is spiritual and eternal. Biblical faith, just to put it in a nutshell. Biblical faith is the moral conviction of spiritual truth. It is the moral conviction of spiritual truth. And faithfulness is the constant exercise of that conviction. You have the conviction of moral truth given to you in the word of God. To be faithful to that is to continue to exercise that conviction. Now what is spiritual truth? We're not talking about mathematical truth, philosophical truth ethical truth, economic truth, political truth. Today we're talking about biblical truth, spiritual truth. What is it? Spiritual truth focuses on those things that pertain to God. God's word, God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, and especially God's salvation provided through his son, Jesus Christ. For these Hebrew people that the Apostle has written this letter, to whom the Apostle has written this letter, everything that they held dear, everything that they understood, everything that they had experienced in their Jewish faith pointed to Jesus Christ. And in this letter he made it very, very clear to them that their Old Testament covenant, their Old Testament Mosaic law, their Old Testament religious system, everything, even the priesthood and everything about the priesthood pointed to the coming Messiah. It was all about Jesus. And all spiritual truth that we find in the New Testament, after the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the letters of Paul, in the letters of John, in the letters of Peter. All of the spiritual truth in the New Testament point back to Jesus Christ as the Messiah who has come. So it's all about Jesus. And the apostle is determined to help these Jewish people, whether Christian or not, to understand that everything Jewish about them pointed to the Messiah, and that Messiah is Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people here today that are in the same situation as the Christians to whom this letter was written. Some here today are Christians, and they're solid in the faith. Some here are Christian, but your faith chart is like the line graph of the U.S. economy in recent years. 
up and down and up and down and up and down. Some here think they are Christian, but they're not sure. Some here know that they are not Christian, but they want to be. And then there are some here who know they are not Christian and they could care less. So in light of this, let me begin the sermon at the end with lesson one. And that lesson is that there is coming a day of judgment. Look at verse 25. In verse 25, Hebrews chapter 10. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching. The apostle talks about an approaching day. A specific day. A specific time when something is going to happen. This approaching day refers to a day of God's judgment. A day of God's judgment. At the time that the letter was written, it referred to the day when God would destroy or would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. Jesus spoke of that same judgment in Matthew chapter 24. This Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 has to do with the Jews. Specifically the Jews in Jerusalem and with regard to the temple as well as the city itself. God would allow Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed. That day came on September the 8th, A.D. 70, when General Titus of the Romans marched his armies through the gates of Jerusalem and completely destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. That was the primary reference to the Day of Judgment. But the Apostle was also alluding to an ultimate day of judgment. Not just the day when God would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed and the Jews to be scattered, but an ultimate day, a final day of judgment when God would destroy the universe, the earth, the heavens, and all that they contain. Look with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. The Apostle Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. There is coming a day when God's judgment will be poured out upon the universe and it will be completely destroyed. Franz Dalich, the great Old Testament scholar, called this day the last great day. 
the day of the promotion of time into eternity. The day when the Christian church breaks through and breaks off the night of this present world. Maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe you don't believe in the judgment of God. And maybe you don't believe that there is coming a day of judgment. Well, you're not the lone ranger in this belief. The Jews of the Old Testament didn't believe God would judge them for their sin by kicking them out of the promised land. But he did. Later on, they didn't believe that God would judge them for their sin by destroying Jerusalem and the temple. But he did. And there is a day approaching when the Christian is going to face a day of judgment as well. 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, that is, to the Lord. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your conscience. There is coming a day of judgment for the Christian when he will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ to receive his reward or to be denied rewards that he would otherwise have received. But there is also a non-Christian judgment where non-believers, both Old Testament and New Testament, will face the great white throne judgment of God. And we find that in Revelation <clears throat> chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works." Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There is coming a day of judgment for the believer at the Bema Seat of Christ. There is coming a day of judgment for the non-believer at the great white throne judgment of God. In other words, there is no escape for anyone from the judgment of God. Now, that's the end of the sermon. And I've already dealt with the beginning of the sermon, but I'm not done. We need to deal with the middle of the sermon as well. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 21. Hebrews 10, 19 to 21. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. The point to the passage is this. Come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved if you're not a Christian. Why? Because there is a day of judgment approaching. And you do not want to be a part of that great white throne judgment because you have not confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Second, be faithful in Jesus Christ if you are an on-again, off-again Christian. If you're not as strong in the faith as you should be. There is a word here for you. And third, continue on in the faith, continue to be faithful and persevere to the end if you are a mature Christian. And so the question is, how do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the apostle will tell us here in these verses. In the text, there are three let us activities that we must engage in. Three verses that tell us what we need to do in order to prepare for the coming day of judgment. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23 tells us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24 tells us, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now remember, the apostle wrote to a group of people who were either on the green side of the fence, spiritually speaking, or who were on the brown side of the fence, spiritually speaking, or who were straddling the fence, spiritually speaking. They were either alive in Christ, or dead in Christ, or they didn't know where they were in Christ or out of Christ. So it was important that they understand the words of the apostle and apply themselves to the truth that he was writing to them. And it's important that we apply ourselves as well to these three activities in view of the coming day when we will appear before our Lord. That brings me to lesson number two. And that is to be saved. Be saved. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a very glowing way of telling these non-Christian Jews to be saved. To be saved. It's a call of salvation to those who knew they weren't saved. 
or to those who had thought about being saved but had not committed themselves to Jesus Christ yet, or to those who weren't really sure one way or the other. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Peter writes, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Listen to what the apostle is saying. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, focused, serious, concerned. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was his way of saying the same thing that the apostle in Hebrews chapter 10 was saying. If you're not a Christian, then you need to consider Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You need to consider the sinfulness of your life. You need to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the Holy Spirit of God who convicts you of that sin. You need to confess that before the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to commit your life to him. You need to invite him into your life as your Lord and Savior. Peter says there is an abundant entrance, an entrance that is supplied to you abundantly to come into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Why would you pass that up? Why would you allow your life to continue on in sin knowing that there is a day of judgment coming? And maybe you say, well, I don't know that there's a day of judgment coming. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Well, dear friend, it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. God's word is true. That day is coming. And you need to be prepared for it. And the best way to be prepared for it is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Be saved. Enter into his kingdom. The grace of God is extended to anyone who will recognize his sin and have a desire to be saved. God extends to you grace and he will give you the faith to believe in and to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior if you will only ask him. And so I pray, dear friends, that you will ask him right now. You will ask him today. Make your call and your election sure by trusting in Jesus Christ. That brings me to lesson three. And it is a word to be faithful to those who are weak, who are vacillating, who are on again and off again in their Christian walk. In verse 23, the apostle said, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This is the call to faithfulness. It is the call for those who know that they are saved, but they realize that they're weak in faith and that they struggle in their faith. The word take hold means to grab onto with all your might. It means to hold down with all of your strength. It's kind of like a uh, a bull or a bronc rider at the rodeo. When the gate is opened and the bronc comes out bucking or the bull comes out twisting and jumping, that 
that cowboy wants to hold on to that rope with all of his might until the horn sounds and he can release himself from that bronking, from that uh, bucking bronco or for that twisting bull. It also reminds me of, uh, of a drowning man who's holding on to a life preserver with all of his might lest he drowned. Or a mountain climber who has slipped and he's holding on to the rope for dear life while dangling off the edge of a cliff. That's what it means to hold on to your faith. It means to trust in the faith that you had in Jesus Christ at the beginning. And don't let it go. You know you've been saved. You know you believed in Jesus Christ. But life keeps getting in the way, doesn't it? Life keeps getting in the way. The apostle says, don't let go of your faith. Don't let it drift between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Don't let it get lost in life and in living. Grab onto it and hold tightly to your confession without wavering. Persecution from family, from friends, from employers, and from other people will come. But God is faithful, and he will see you through it if you continue to trust in Jesus. Satan will tempt you, and he will put you to the test. The things of the world will pull at your heart and at your mind and cause you to long to the former things of life. Maybe the Christian faith wasn't everything you thought it would be. But God is faithful, and he will see you through it if you continue to persist in holding on to the faith that you once believed. Honor the Lord Jesus Christ by being faithful to him as he has been faithful to you. And that brings me to lesson the next lesson, well, before we get there, let me give you a word of encouragement from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, starting in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Here is a word of encouragement, that we should hold on to the faith, because God is holding on to us. And another word of encouragement from Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. And that word boldly means to come with confidence. Let us come with confidence 
to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you facing trials and tribulations? Are you facing alienation and loneliness? Are you facing persecution? Are you facing the longings to go back into your former life? Look to Jesus. He understands. He in the flesh came to understand the human weaknesses. And he is able to minister to us if we will simply come to him with confidence. He can meet those longings. He can meet those emotions. He can meet those situations in your life if you'll only turn to him. Now lesson four. And it is a word to those who are mature Christians. And the word is stay faithful. Stay faithful. Look at verse 24. And let us consider one another in words... Let us consider one another in words. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means let us continue to regard the welfare of each other. It means to keep on taking care of each other. Christians need to be taking care of brothers and sisters in the faith. The Christian church needs to continue to care for the members of its fellowship. And the apostle gives us three ways in which that can be done. He says, first of all, stir up love unto good works. Stir up love unto good works. Do you know what it means to stir the pot? Do you know what it means to stir the pot? I'm not talking about mixing marijuana leaves together for your favorite smoke, no. To stir the pot is to agitate a person or a situation in order to cause a reaction. And oftentimes people who stir the pot stir the pot in order to make other people irritated or agitated. Oftentimes it's a negative thing. Sometimes it is a positive thing and it's necessary when people become lazy or when people uh, uh, become rather laissez-faire in the things of life. Uh, they, uh, others need to stir the pot to get them motivated again. But usually an individual will stir the pot just so he can see how it agitates other people. I knew a man not a thousand years ago or a million miles away who believed that stirring the pot was his spiritual gift to the church. He was always present in business meetings. He was always present in committee meetings. And he was always stirring the pot. He delighted in it. And he used it often. Here the apostle calls each Christian... To stir the pot of Christian love and good works. What, is, what do I mean by that? To encourage others in Christian love for one another and for good works. To encourage one another in Christian love for one another and for good works. To inspire one another in Christian love and in ministry. The word stir originally meant to use a sharp stick to motivate, 
to prompt, to drive, like a cattle prod, or like spurs on a person's boots. The stick, the spur, was to motivate action. What are the good works? Primarily, the good works are the works that reflect your spiritual gifts. What has the Holy Spirit gifted you to do in the fellowship? What is it that the kingdom of God would have you do to strengthen and to expand that kingdom? It all has to do with the spiritual giftedness that God has blessed you with. Those supernatural abilities empowered by the Holy Spirit to motivate brothers and sisters in Christ to get on with the work of the kingdom. Some are gifted to preach. And we need to get on with our preaching. Some are gifted to teach. And they need to step up to the teaching lectern or get on to Zoom and begin teaching classes to those who are interested in Bible study. Some are gifted to pray. Don't put it off any longer. Let's get busy praying to our Lord. Some are gifted in hospitality. Make it happen. Some are gifted to reprove and to correct and to rebuke and to exhort. Dear friends, Sacramento is waiting to hear from you. We need to reprove and to correct and to rebuke and to exhort individuals on in the Christian faith. You may very well say, well, I'm afraid to do that. Well, dear friends, let the Holy Spirit turn your fear into faith. Let the Holy Spirit lead you into the work that he has saved you and gifted you to do. Listen to him and follow his leadership. He's not going to lead you into a place that's going to trap you or ruin you or destroy you. He's going to lead you into a place and into a work that will bless your life and the lives of those around you. The point is this. Don't waste this opportunity to let Jesus shine in you and through you to others. Be whom Jesus Christ saved you to be. Do what the Holy Spirit has gifted you to do and achieve God's plan that he has set for you to achieve. Let's regard the welfare of each other and keep on taking care of each other By verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I read that verse and I understand it in the Greek language. It's like being a Marine. Don't leave anyone behind. It's not just about making time and uh, associating with each other in a specific place. It does mean that. But it also means don't exclude anybody. When you assemble yourselves together, don't leave anyone in the family behind. Beloved, there are some members of our church family who've fallen 
through the cracks. Like Elvis, they have left the building. But we didn't notice. And they got left behind. Because we left them behind. We need to get back on track with our church family. We need to get back on track with our church family. Just like there's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm sorry to you cat lovers. There is more than one way to assemble together. There is more than one way to meet together, to be together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. One way is here on the church campus. You say the government won't allow us. I say God will allow us and wants us to meet together. We are the people of God. We can stand up. And we can speak up as did the apostles Paul and John in Acts chapter 4 verses 8 through 20. When they said to the Jewish elders, rulers of the people and elders, let it be known to you all and to all the people of the land that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, I know what you're saying to us, rulers of Israel. But you need to know what God is saying to us. And God is saying to us, when it comes to obeying you or to obey God, we're going to obey God. We're going to stand and we're going to obey God. It may cost us, but the reward is far greater than the cost. And so barring some unforeseen catastrophic event, we will not close for worship or ministry again. If protesters can meet and march in mass, guaranteed by the First Amendment, then we can meet and minister in mass, guaranteed by God and the First Amendment. People can go to Costco and Walmart and Target and Save Mart and other places to get what they need to survive physically. Then we can meet together and get what we need to thrive spiritually. So let's meet in homes for prayer and Bible study and fellowship and encouragement. Let's meet on campus, in, in classrooms, in the sanctuary, in other places for prayer and for Bible study and fellowship and encouragement. We can even go down to the river and meet together for prayer and Bible study and fellowship and encouragement. In other words, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let's not leave anyone behind again. And then finally, verse 25. Not only should we regard the welfare of each other and keep on taking care of each other, let's also exhort one another. Now the word exhort means to encourage, 
to comfort, to warn, and to strengthen. In other words, let's take care of each other by taking care of each other. Let's take care of each other by taking care of each other. And you may ask, well, what does that mean? It means simply this. Let's take care of each other. Let's take care of each other. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus said, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Minister to other people the way you want to be ministered to. You want people to visit you? Well, make sure you visit others as well. You want people to call you? Keep your phone at hand and issue calls out to others who need to hear from you. You want to get a card or a letter of encouragement from someone? Make sure you're sending out cards and letters of encouragement to others. You need someone to take you to the doctor, to the store, or to some other place where you need to pick up things that are necessary for you, then you be available to take someone with you who needs a ride. Whatever you would have people to do for you, make sure that you're available to do the same for them. There are a thousand ways to take care of others. We need to be sensitive to the needs of others. And we need to be busy and creative in taking care of others. We need to be fat. We need to be fat. Not like the preacher, but we need to be fat. Faithful, available, and teachable. Faithful to the Lord to serve Him at a moment's notice. Available to the Lord to serve Him at a moment's notice. And teachable to serve Him at a moment's notice. Why? Why do we need to be attentive to any and all of these things? Because Jesus Christ is coming again. The day is approaching. Jesus is coming again, and I believe that day is coming very soon. We need to get ready personally and as a church. We need to help others get ready. The people that received this letter from the apostle, they were not ready. They were afraid of persecution. They were worried about alienation. They were concerned about what other people would say and do. Some were not saved. Some longed for their old ways of life. Some wanted to think, uh, some wanted to chuck this whole Christian thing and go back to the way things used to be. And beloved, I know they're not the only ones. Some of them are right here among us today. So dear friends... My encouragement to us as a church is to wake up and to get up, to get saved, to get right with God, to get busy ministering to those who need Jesus Christ and His church. Pray with me. Father in heaven, 
we know the days are growing short. And soon our Lord is going to return. While some of us are anxious for his return, others among us are not ready. The days have been frustrating, demoralizing, and fearful for many of us. And while many of us have bought into that fear, we need now to hold on to our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not my intention to be foolish or to throw caution to the wind, but it is my desire to let God be God and to let the church be the church. We have begun again in the direction that leads upward and onward. Help us not to turn back into the wilderness of darkness and sin and fear and death. And this we will do to the honor and to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. Today is Communion Day, and so I would have you join with us uh, in observing the Lord's Supper. So if you're at home, if, you have, if you'll take a moment and go and get um, some juice and get uh, some bread, we will observe the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the bread. That is a symbol of our Lord's body. And let's eat it together. Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's also take the cup, which is a symbol of our Lord's blood and the sacrifice for our sin. And let's drink it together, remembering the words of our Lord who said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you you drink it in remembrance of me. I pray God's blessings upon you for the remainder of the day and for this new week. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. 
If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.